0: Welcome to the Waiting Room Revolution. Today, we have Dr. Nahid Dasani returning. He's a palliative care physician who cares for homeless and vulnerably housed individuals and is a vocal advocate for health equity. He's joined by Dr. Amit Arya, who is a palliative care lead at Kensington Health and is the co-founder of Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. We speak to these two thought leaders about equity and palliative care in the context of the health and social system. Hi, I'm Xian Xiao.
1: And I'm Sammy Winemaker. We talk to people who have information and tips on how to unlock a better illness experience.
0: The waiting room revolution starts right now. Amit, Nahid, thank you for joining us today. Thanks so thank much you. for having us on, yeah. Welcome. Nahid, you, you were one of our first guests in season two where we talked about you know uh, palliative care for the homeless and vulnerably housed, your PEACH program. But you have a huge platform to talk about many other things. And both of you are sort of you are Twitter influencers or clinician influencers and beyond. And I would love to hear um, what you would say is your sort of what your soapbox is now. like what is it that you are trying to push for that you wish everyone who's listening would would get on board and, and pay attention to.
2: Yeah, you know, I think it's an interesting point to talk about. You know, the the perspectives that we offer. You know, definitely our colleagues and our discipline through through looking at you know a palliative approach to care. You know, in our day to day, but also also the world. And what I've learned, you know, it's been you know several years of doing this work, particularly you know providing healthcare and particularly palliative care for people experiencing homelessness uh, through our outreach program in Toronto. Um, is that you know um, the the perspective or the viewpoint of what that looks like um, can actually inform a lot of conversations that previously I don't know were necessarily being informed. Um, colleagues who work in the, the housing sector are so grateful when, you know, we take to the airwaves or write op-eds about what it's like to support people with serious illnesses, illnesses who don't have housing. My colleagues who work in food security say the same thing. We love when you talk about food security because, you know, you know dealing with food security in a serious illness situation is so real. And then, uh, you know, ODSP, for example. So, you know, the, the, the journey has really taken me to a place where you know through the lens of palliative care we actually can dissect many social determinants of health and can actually become advocates and and social change agents for how we can better serve structurally vulnerable populations and derive health equity in our communities. And so that happens on social media, that happens in the media, that happens in conversations like this, uh, or in academic kind of discourse. And it's kind of like exploded um, and and allowed us to have you know a, a say on 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 platforms, on stages. And we probably should have been there all along. And I'm really grateful to have that opportunity and and to see what's possible moving forward.
0: And Emmett. I know you are an advocate for health equity as well, including in long-term care. So I'm curious, how did that passion for long-term care come about?
3: Yeah, so really, I mean, it's through my own personal experiences again, and I'll take it back to that time when I was, I guess, in a previous incarnation uh, in family medicine, comprehensive family medicine. And yeah, all of this was kind of happening at a similar time. So at the time when I was building up my home palliative care practice, I had the opportunity to work in a long-term care facility and um, uh, I was responsible for the care of about 32 residents in this long-term care facility. And I was really quite surprised uh, when I initially started as to the acuity of the of the patients and actually how much palliative care was you know, was needed in, you know, just caring for 32 patients. I remember I um, used to go there on Mondays and I used to spend almost my entire day on Monday working in long-term care. Mm -hmm. I often would go back on another day of the week on Thursdays Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes even on the weekend, I would drop by. And the reason for that was that, you know, I mean, it was... Just sort of the norm that within a you know a given week there would be somebody who would aspirate, uh, you know there would be somebody else who would um, you know fall, you know there would be another patient who would have worsened pain. And um, you know the culture, uh, at least at that time. I mean, I can tell you, I think things are shifting slowly. I think too slowly in the right direction. But at that time, you know, you know, like I I, like I felt that there was not enough, uh, you know, attention devoted to goals of care conversations. In fact, I would say, and I can tell you very openly, the residents that I was responsible for the care for, I mean, no one had really had an effective goals of care conversation with those residents and their families at all. So there was no goals goals of care conversation. There was no real conversation around symptom management there was no real effort to actually providing care to people in the long-term care facility rather than just transferring people to the hospital mm-hmm. and of course as you know we're not against hospital transfer I mean hospitals mm-hmm. are always open and ready to care for people whenever it's required but there were many people who just didn't want to go to the hospital and I think there needed to be some connections so I fondly remember very briefly I mean there were several instances for example where we I was able to call uh, home and community care in the Lynn and we were able to get for example IV antibiotics. Robotics in the long-term care facility to treat people in place along with concurrently providing them a symptom management approach.
1: Did you anticipate, Nahid, that there would be such a ripple effect on all these adjacent issues? Like you start with advocating for one thing and then suddenly you find yourself screaming through social media about things maybe you didn't realize you would be advocating for.
2: You know, I think, um, you know, definitely what, you know, led me to this world was focused care to improve access to care for people who are, you know, on the streets, in shelters, living in parks, but what, what we clinically quickly realized was there was actually many more people um, than we could have ever imagined that were in the situation. And it wasn't, you know, just the definition of vulnerable housing or homelessness, we started to then re- realize that there were people who were new Canadians, Im- you know, immigrants, refugees who were lacking care, people, um, you know, were with with disabilities, living in poverty, experiencing gaps in care, um, and many other groups who experienced marginalization due to trauma, uh, isolation, mental health, um, you know, drug use, whatever it might be. And so this kind of really just opened up and 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 so I, I never could have imagined that it would have become such a a large audience or large, you know, population that we were we were starting to serve. But it certainly has become that. And I think what started as a, as, as, as a, as a project in advocacy has become a responsibility, a day-to-day duty to, and a moral obligation to the communities we serve, not just in the clinical care we provide, but the advocacy we do as well. Um, And yeah, so who, you know, I never would have thought it would have become what it is, but here we are now, and and now we have to look forward.
1: I feel like you should have been in public health. Do you well, ever I mean, that? Do you ever wonder, oh, well, well, I could have done mean, of public health. <laughs> I
2: mean, I'll challenge and say I am in public health. I think well, we, we all are. Yeah, yeah we, we all are. All, I think yeah. we all have a duty to, um, you know, Provide uh, uh, definitely at the micro level, that one on one person person clinical care. But I think at the MISON macro level and the systems level, we are doing public health work every single day. And I think conversations like this to destigmatize palliative care and concepts around death and dying and what it's like to be with a serious illness is part of that. But when you start to meld the healthcare public health part with the social aspects of public health, housing, income, food security, social supports, it becomes really important. And I think one issue that's really come up recently where this has come to light is discussions around medical assistance and dying particularly for people with disabilities in track two and we've been hearing about these cases where people are living in poverty people don't have housing and they're choosing medical assistance and dying because they don't have the resources to live well and there's a perfect example of an intersection of our public health minds melding on a really issue that a lot of people are talking about right now and where our discourse is really needed.
3: Yeah. And just to jump in on, uh, on, on on some of those comments, I mean, you know, I, I can just tell you, we were talking a little bit of my, about my own personal journey, how I kind of, uh, you know, sort of learned about palliative care as a family physician, practiced primary palliative care. And then just to add to that, I retrained and started working as a so-called palliative care specialist. And, you know, as part of that, you know, in the initial days, I remember thinking about relief of suffering, you know, in terms of things that we would teach at a leap course where, you know, I think about hydromorphone dosing and the need for palliative sedation and Having better goals of care conversations, and of course, those skill sets are equally important. But I think that concept of relief of suffering can really extend in many different ways. So naturally, for people who are working in palliative care, and that's something that you know, Dr. Dasani and I, like Mahid and I, have experienced. So it can be relief of suffering from you know lack of housing, you know relief of suffering from caregiver burnout, you know and isolation, relief of suffering from you know systemic racism, you know relief of suffering from poverty. I mean, there's actually so many causes of suffering as to you know, what, you know, why, you know, somebody might be suffering. And once again, we always think about palliative care 101, Dame Cicely Saunders, you know, you know, that sort of wheel where we talk about, you know, holistic, you know, like approaches to addressing suffering, where we're not just looking at physical pain and not just looking at giving hydromorphone to address suffering. So I, I think this, once again, this conversation by itself flows very naturally for us working in palliative care.
1: Often, uh, CN and I have reflected that our so-called revolution to activate Empower, um, uh, you know, patients and families, really does potentially miss lots of people because lots of people, just by nature of, you know, their circumstances, uh, do not feel empowered, cannot find their voice. Um, you know, the idea of activating them looks very different. Uh, you know, to to be part of our revolution. You can listen to the podcast, or you can read our book, or you can, and again, those inherently will miss tons of people. So um, there are limitations to the work that we're doing, and so we're very grateful for the work that you guys are doing that's helping bring a voice to all the people who we're probably missing. Um,
2: yep. Yeah, I mean, I think just to to add on to that, I think um, like it's important to say that it's probably why you've had so much success with the podcast is because you are recognizing that you know these kind of like traditional top-down kind of approaches of like transplanting knowledge on people doesn't really work all the time for all people it does work for some but not everybody and so the history of medicine and healthcare has a long history of of being that way of paternalistic approaches of, of of downloading information on patients and that certainly needs to change and one of the things that historically I think the palliative care community Community has done is you know we're the experts we're going to come teach you about this and then you're going to learn and you're going to do this and this hasn't worked in many communities especially people who deal with um, health inequities um, in our society and what 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 has what has worked in my experience and our experience working in you know in in the communities we serve is that we kind of really come at it with an approach where we don't know everything about how to serve you we're actually in a two-way learning zone uh, we may know about some pieces of palliative medicine well that's just like one small you know, piece of a very big pie. And we have a lot to learn from you. And, um, you know, you know, death and dying on the streets and in shelters is very different than it is in, you know, in in certain neighborhoods where people have large houses um, or certain, you know, other kinds of neighborhoods that are out there. And we always talk about what does palliative care look like for this person? And so for some of the people I care for, palliative care looks like having access to, you know, a clean needles and, and harm reduction approaches so they can use drugs safely through a harm reduction and human rights approach as they as they deal with their illness and die for others um, it looks like having access to art therapy for others it has looks like having access to their informal caregivers their street family being able to visit them without judgment discrimination or harassment and you know this often happens in our healthcare settings um, and so you know we always have to ask yourself what does palliative care look like for this person in front of us and it's not always what we would have you know thought of For ourselves and so often we project what we think we would want um, on others and that's 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 tough to unlearn and there's a lot of unlearning that i think we have to do as providers to meet the needs of the various people we aim to serve in our day-to-day
1: so much of the core of um, what i do is about illness understanding uh, making sure that people have a chance to really understand where they're at in their illness what's going to happen, what to expect, what this is gonna look like as things unfold. Not forcing people to know, but inviting people to be really super in the know. Um, Where does that fit into the work that you do?
3: Yeah, so I think it's an issue, but uh, often I think these conversations, um, you know, come down to how the conversation is had, rather than the actual content of the conversation. And as physicians, especially, we're a little guilty about focusing very much so on content, uh, you know, trying to focus on our checkbox of things to establish when we're doing a consult, for example, going through our symptom checklist, we have to establish code status, we have to talk about goals of care. And, you know, as we are kind of alluding to that may not align with, you know, what the patient's Mm -hmm. wishes are that may not at all align with you know what they you know what they're thinking about in terms of quality of life but specific to your question Sammy and what you know what you're speaking about I, I can share with you you know working with many people who are racialized people who don't speak English as a first language people who are immigrants there mm-hmm. are many many different ways that people discuss serious illness often indirect ways that mm-hmm. we might not think about because you know in our sort of North American uh, you know sort of Western or Northern European sort of you know influence that we have in these conversations they're very much autonomous economy-driven, which is why we have this phrase patient-centered care. But, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not really about the collective. It's not really about these indirect style of conversations. So often, you know, I have situations where people do want to know, they absolutely want to know, but they want to know in a different way. Mm -hmm. And that way is very respectful to, you know, you know, for them, it will not worsen their quality of life. And I think sometimes as palliative care providers, unknowingly, I have definitely seen situations where well-meaning, you know, sort of health workers, my colleagues went into someone's room, had a conversation uh, and tried to do it very compassionately with a lot of skill, but it unfortunately backfired and caused a lot more distress, which is obviously not the intention of anybody uh, working on the front lines of our healthcare system. Uh, You know, it's not the intention of any of our palliative care colleagues. So I think this once again speaks to, you know, like, you know, how we should be moving away from this one size fits all approach, um, you know, and this is sort of something that we're kind of, struggling to find you know like how to do because the system is already so stretched we know that you know even in medical school training and so on you know many of the you know many people who are graduating don't have even the basic skills on how to have goals of care conversations they're learning this you know these skills on the go and Mm -hmm. with that they're often not learning you know this sort of you know like you know more of an equity informed approach to these discussions they're maybe not even learning you know how to do them well in general (laughs) right so it's 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 something that we often struggle with but obviously something very, very important uh, You know, if we do think about having goals of care discussions, uh, palliative care itself as a human right and not just a luxury.
0: So as a follow-up to that, I mean, given what you've been seeing out there, what you've been hearing, what you've been learning about and advocating for, I'd love to know what do you think are the biggest opportunities and levers for change to achieve a more equitable health and social system?
2: Yeah, I think a couple of thoughts that come to mind around that are um, the powerful narratives and stories of the people we care for. I think there's a propensity for clinicians to talk about data and evidence and all those things are very important. Certainly, don't get me wrong. But when I thought about you know what it's taken to derive policy change around, you know, changing funding formulas for a hospice so structurally vulnerable people get access or in you know getting more hours for home care in a local region, it's often been the stories we tell of, people who are falling to the cracks, people who are not getting the care they need and I find as we move to more and more into an evidence-based world I think people are moving further away from stories and narratives and that's unfortunate and so we need to bring I think stories and narratives back to the forefront with consent of course and you know keeping privacy in mind and doing this respectfully. Um, I think that's you know an important uh, lever. I think um, the other powerful tool that i found in advocating for change has been destigmatizing um, the experiences of structurally vulnerable people um, and really exploring that with the audiences I speak to and and and, and interact with a lot of people for example have uh, the misconception that people who experience poverty and homelessness are lazy or that they've you know uh, you know done things to deserve that or they've made bad choices on purpose and that could be the furthest thing from the truth I never met a person on the street who truly always Always wanted to be that way. Um, not that the people I care for haven't made some poor decisions that you know, some might deem like deem to be poor, but you know, needless to say that there are many pathways to the streets and many people who are on the streets are there because of a weakening social safety net in our society around social assistance, around housing. And many of us are just a few paychecks away or a few bad luck incidents away from being on the streets, um, uh, for example. And I think the third is once you kind of destigmatize you know, the issue is tapping into compassion. What I've learned is that through a palliative care lens and through palliative care advocacy is that people are quite compassionate. When Once people, you know, in this country, I, I found once Canadians hear about someone who is, you know, dealing with a serious illness, who is potentially dying, and then also dealing with structural deficits like poverty and homelessness, there is a real, like, there's a real compassion there. People reach out, people donate, people want to make change, people want to sign petitions, people want to join the cause. And so, you know, we need to tie that compassion to action so that people can actually join movements and do things. So, I think, you know, um, in summary, I would say that, you know, really those are the, the things the power of story and, and narrative, you know, really destigmatizing and tapping into the compassion that I know exists in our society already.
1: Have you guys had any backlash or have you been told by, for example, the college uh, of physicians and surgeons, you know, you're, you were walking a fine line with that message or you need to not air the dirty laundry of the healthcare system or like, has there been any dark side um, that you can share with us?
3: So, you know, like we are independent experts uh, when it comes down to it, when we are speaking in social media and and we're we're in the media and in the space. And the other thing that I wanted to add is that, you know, I think it's very important. I think as physicians, we have educational power and, you know, like, you know, sort of great privilege in the system. And the physician voice is really one that's very respected in the media. When we're speaking about specific issues, I mean, definitely, it can make a big impact in terms of influencing policy, uh, influencing governments to kind of change and shift course. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think, you know, for all physicians, um, you know, advocacy is actually part of the CanMeds criteria, right? It's one mm-hmm. of our roles where we it's it's part of socially accountable practice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we work in a world actually right now where inequity is unfortunately not decreasing, I would say, like poverty is increasing, inflation is on the increase. We have patients, I mean, I can just share with you, um, you know, last week I had a patient who was, um, you know, at home uh, receiving home palliative care, um, who couldn't afford groceries. Right. And this is an issue. Right. And we and, and, and I also hear I'll just wrap up my comments, but I'm hearing more and more from medical learners that they are themselves experiencing more moral distress working within a system that is not working well for their patients, whether it's this issue of inflation. Whether, you know, they're working in emergency departments during their training where there's like, you know, not many nurses left to provide proper care, you know, you know, whether they're seeing people who are, you know, in their family medicine clinic who are waiting very long for, you know, to get a, you know, a very necessary surgical procedure and they're suffering this is actually a conversation that's happening a lot and a lot more I would say uh, through the COVID-19 pandemic so as you know Nahid has said I think that we can you know you know collectively use our voices to influence you know change and you know promote proper health and social care for people who are vulnerable. Mm
0: -hmm. So I was going to follow up to say like you've talked both talked about the some of the positives and the power of the social media but you know there's also some negative things that come along with it the haters like how I'm just curious Um, How do you guys deal with that?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, um, as Sam, you mentioned, there's certainly a dark side. And I'd say the dark side is the dark dark side of the Internet. And I think COVID-19 really blew this up. For health workers you know we, we went from you know having people bang on pots and pans to getting death threats um uh, on a regular basis and i'm not the only colleague who's you know in in healthcare who's experienced this is coming to our our phones our, our fax machines even <laughs> email you know to, uh, private messaging and so it, it has um and and i have to say it hasn't necessarily stopped and so many in many spaces the darkest corners of the internet it has actually gotten worse um and so Um, you know, is online hate for health workers here to stay. Uh, I think for the foreseeable future, it seems to be despite, you know, actions by our federal government, like it it is a it is a federal crime to harass a health worker. Yet, I'm not sure that that new law has actually been put into play. You know, these laws exist, and it still goes on. So I think um, you're seeing a lot of health workers who are dealing with uh, moral injury compassion fatigue and all out burnout. I think it's and especially when we're going out on these platforms and we're putting ourselves out there to protect the health of our communities and our very own governments are supporting policies that um, actually hurt the health of the people we're trying to serve. And, you know, we saw this during COVID-19 around an inequitable vaccine rollout. Uh, we saw this around, you know, lack of equitable access to testing and more recently, the removal of COVID protection such as isolation rules. And so that has led to all out burnout for so many people. And so, you know, what you have to really think about is how do we move forward and what gets us moving forward. And I think a lot of people at this moment typically talk about resilience and that there's there's, there's not a lot of resilience left in a health in a system where our health system is crashing where we're seeing the rise of the use of private health care systems uh, for example private nursing agencies um, and it's just it just feels like it's it's all kind of falling apart and it, it's in these times when I when I personally you know continue to put you know the people I care for at the center of the focus and remind myself of why we're doing this why we're out here advocating when I I also you know when I feel like that I look to colleagues who are doing incredible work and amplify. Them, you know, Amit's, you know, one of them. There's so many others who do incredible work and just, re- you know, reverberate their work and their messaging and 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 bring it back to the values we talked about about human rights, about equity and justice. That should be our north star. And if you follow that, your compass and that's your north star, you will never get lost. You will never, uh, you will never go astray.
3: Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't have much to add after that. I mean, I can just, I can just really say that. I mean, I think you know, like part of what you know, Nahid is also alluding to, and we've seen also, frankly, get worse during the pandemic in all sectors and affecting palliative care is the health of health workers. I mean, we we can only really have a proper healthcare system if we look after the health of health workers. And I'm, I, I, you know, once again, a natural sort of conversation with palliative care colleagues is to speak about this because in palliative care, one of our core stances is that we pride ourselves on not working in this top-down pyramid model we work in an interprofessional team but you know I think we need to do more to check up on the health of our interprofessional team members I mean it's been uh, just sharing one example that comes to mind I mean it's sort of been a regular thing uh, once again working in the hospital working in home care and long-term care that I you know I run across a nurse who is you know speaking to me in the hospital who tells me hey you know like I used to work and I used to love doing home visits but You know, I couldn't pay my grocery bills and I couldn't pay my rent. So I had to leave. I loved my patients. I loved the work, but I just couldn't do it. And sadly, those type of stories are becoming worse at this point in time, right? We're seeing a lot more of this revolving door phenomenon in our interprofessional colleagues uh, because of the fact that, you know, we we haven't looked at protecting the health of health workers. We haven't looked at improving working conditions. Um, I mean, specifically speaking here in Ontario, Nahid has spoken about, uh, you know, the, you know, you know, furthering or, you know, advancing the cause of uh, private for-profit delivery of healthcare, but there's also this sort of, um, you know, issue of, of developers where we're building more buildings, we're building more hospitals, we're building more long-term care facilities, Uh, whether people want to be in long-term care or not. I mean, we know that's not the case. People don't want to necessarily go to long-term care and they can be cared for at home uh, in, in many circumstances. But you know, really, I mean, the question is always there, even if we have beds and we have buildings, I mean, these beds are just furniture unless we have enough trained staff who are also healthy and well enough themselves to look after the patients who need the care.
0: You know, one of the things that have come up in many of our conversations over the past few years is what really constitutes palliative care, including whether it ought to be delivered in hospitals or in hospices, in people's homes, doctor's offices, or on the streets. And it has become clear that people's thoughts on where to get optimal care is influenced greatly by their culture and their past experiences. And I would say our system and even research on things like quality indicators would really seem to have a bent towards certain specific settings being the optimal place for care delivery so i'm curious about what your thoughts are about this discussion from a health equity standpoint
2: yeah and i think for listeners i think it's important to recognize that you know um the the that it's it's really important for us to think about the spaces we create and 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 what that says about who gets access to care and who doesn't get access to care when you create, um, you know, a space and I'm just giving some examples with marble floors and beautiful paintings on the wall and people wear, you know, you know, suits and, and blazers or, you know, that might be really welcoming to a certain subset of society, but it's actually very alarming and traumatic and triggering for many, many others who have, you know, have had bad experiences with institutionalization, um, with 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 healthcare even, and so um, we really have to have a serious conversation about how our dollars are being spent. I always tell you know uh, you know senior leaders in healthcare and particularly in palliative care, don't pride yourself on who you provide care for. Um, seek and ask the questions: Who are you not providing care for? And that is what you should be really focused on. And that's what and that's what really will lead you down the path of equity because all of a sudden you'll start to realize you know where we've located this hospice is not welcome to certain communities the way we've designed it the colors we use the staff the makeup of staff the way staff approach people uh where we get referrals i mean there's so many you know policies do we have harm reduction do we educate our staff around anti-racist approaches to training or trauma-informed care so you know i think um, you know, I don't think it's as simple as a binary, like, do we support residential bricks and mortar hospices or not? It, it you know, we, certainly there is a role for that, but, you know, in certain communities, bricks and more residential hospices just won't be an equitable response you know and we can dig deeper into what equitable responses look like i giving you a few samples but i think that's
3: the kind of conversation we need to be having right mm-hmm. yeah so i mean absolutely agree and i can just put it out there i, I mean i've really found I mean, once again love working in hospice the health workers are amazing the training um is, is is incredible especially of our nursing social work psw colleagues who work in hospice they just do a fantastic job but i, I mean you know very honest just even as someone who's racialized, you know, myself and is the, you know, the, you know, the son of immigrants from India. I mean, I find hospice, you know, just in its design and architecture is a very white Eurocentric type of space where I'm not sure even my own parents would feel safe, you know, you know, being in in spite of the fact that they've been in Canada for many, many years, they can speak English very fluently and, you know, you know, and so on. So I think there needs to be a lot more conversation around, you know, as Dr. DeSani has said, how we create these spaces. And, you know, I think, you know, even taking this conversation a little bit broader. Um, you know, you've you, you spoken about, you know, you know, Sammy, how it's so hard to get that extra hour of PSW. I mean, you know, like I work at Kensington uh, along with Nahid and I provide palliative care consults in their long-term care you know, home, which is right next to their hospice. And in the hospice, they have one nurse looking after five five patients. And in the, you know, in the long-term care facility, where I would argue that often acuity can be higher because people can suddenly decline when they have a non-malignant illness. Uh, often the goals of care aren't as well differentiated. Uh, You know the time course of suffering can actually be longer. Uh, In those situations we have one nurse looking after 25 residents, and then we want one for 50 at night. Luckily we have. you know, good PSW support, good in terms of what long term care facilities may often look like. There's a lot of variability, but it might be one PSW looking after three or four residents. But you can imagine things are very stretched. I mean, I've had circumstances where I have a resident who's acutely symptomatic, I need stat medication. And, you know, the poor nurse who's very, very concerned and devoted is, you know, trying to give medications to everyone and it's like dinner time. So things are just so stretched in the system. And frankly, if you want to really take this conversation broader, I think when we look at all of our community resources we look at these buildings we're putting up whether it's long-term care hospice home care I would even broaden it out complex continuing care rehabilitation units we need to kind of redraw all of this because mm-hmm. this is not working very well uh, in, in 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 my personal opinion and I think that transitions of care especially are not at all very well supported and as we know in many many circumstances you know people's palliative care needs and the palliative approach to care just isn't happening
0: at all. So Sam and I talk a lot about our motivation for this podcast and the waiting room revolution movement in general. It's to try to go upstream because we seem to meet most people and families so late in the journey. And we are really trying to change the whole experience. And we've learned to improve the end, you have to improve the beginning. So I'm curious, do you see that in your work?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I think as a palliative care physician who provides palliative care for people who experience health inequities and structural vulnerabilities. um, I think what we're doing um, at the later and often end of life for people is we are seeing the cumulative effects of what health inequities do to people over a lifetime. You know, this is what it looks like when people live in poverty for decades and decades. This is what it looks like when people don't have access to food, when people don't have a roof over their head or or are traumatized or discriminated or oppressed in society. And, And then add in a biological medical illness on top of that. So Mm -hmm. I think certainly, you know, um, we are uh, at, in, at a juncture where we are dealing with multiple like issues that are, are intertwined in and in creating a complex web. Um, that really is what we mean by structural vulnerability, but it is a reminder of why we do the work. Obviously we're here to provide, you know, compassionate, you know, trauma-informed person-centered care, but it's also a reminder of why we need to advocate, why we need to go upstream to advocate for housing for all, for, you know, um for making sure that people have basic access to income to make sure that people have social supports and we derive compassionate communities that support people you know <clears throat> and why harm reduction and scaled up harm reduction policies are important um it, it's a reminder at the end of life of why we need to go upstream so you know in the future there aren't more people who end up in the situation of the person you're serving so yeah i think i think sometimes that's happening but it's not just health care it's it's the social care that we're yeah. we're also addressing at the same time
1: i think i just am like thinking of a picture in my mind now as i hear you speak of you know our revolution has taken um the interventions let's just say or the discussion from end-of-life care to the time of diagnosis of a progressive life-limiting illness but you are working even way more upstream at that, uh, looking at a person's lifetime um, of uh, facing multiple hurdles and barriers and um, atrocities. And then the progressive life-limiting illness diagnosis is just one of many. <laughs> um, so it's a different touch point, And I really appreciate that.
3: Well, thank
1: you. Thank you.
3: Yeah, we very much know, actually, just to add to that point and maybe say it in a bit of a different way. I mean, we actually know that uh, here in Canada, I mean, we don't collect race-based data, unfortunately, generally, but we look at other surrogate markers, country of birth, for example, being one of them. And we know that, you know, actually, that's one of the biggest determining factors as to whether you receive a palliative care approach or not. When, uh, you know, the research actually shows us that it's not that people who are immigrants, people who are racialized, people who are marginalized, want to suffer. And it's not like people want to be in the ICU you and want to receive, you know, like, you know, you know, interventions that aren't medically indicated. That's actually not, not the truth. But there's, you know, as there's healthcare disparities, there's disparities in how we deliver palliative care, uh, you know, who, who gets admitted into hospice, who gets admitted into long term care, so how services are allocated for home care. So there's disparities already in a, in a broken system. And then there's sort of miscommunication where once again, we talked about this one size fits all approach, uh, you know, which just doesn't work. And it's frankly, the wrong approach uh, for, you know, for many Different communities. So I think that's, you know, something we have to speak about. And really, you know, one way to encapsulate what we're speaking about is this phenomenon of, you know, too little care for most of someone's life, where they maybe didn't have proper access, uh, you know, to primary care, or didn't have, you know, medicine, to, uh, or, you know, didn't have money to pay for their own medications, and they became sicker quicker. And then it's too much care at the end of life, where, you know, often at the end of life, you can imagine if you were in that scenario, and you were desperate to receive some type of health care and some type of assistance, and suddenly you're in a situation where maybe a physician is now saying, well, you know, now we're not going to provide you this type of care. We're not going to save your life. And you've been fighting all your life to actually try to live.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
3: you, you can just imagine how that would feel and how that would sound.
0: There are listeners who want to be a part of making the health system more equitable and to do the right things. Um, I suspect you have seen, uh, like, you know, what things are the right things that they should be doing and what things are things that sound great, but me are actually probably not all that helpful. So, so maybe
3: I can get the conversation started and build a little bit, uh, you, know, you know, based upon what Nahid was saying. Uh, I think there's many different ways, and we've talked a little bit about social media. Uh, you know, I wanted to add that, I'll say it again, it's very important that you follow the, you know, the policies of your college and, you know, whatever organization you belong to, uh, but also social media and all this, you know, work takes time. It takes a lot of effort. It can be very stressful. It's not just about likes where, you know, we often worry, like, we want to say the right thing. We want to say something that is accurate and also... So once again, equity informed and, you know, you know, adhering to the principles of health justice as well. So that's something to think about, uh, maybe helpful to have a mentor who's maybe more experienced in, you know, dealing with social media and how to navigate social media. But there are also other ways, um, you know, and others, you know, ways that you can be an advocate. You know, in my opinion, if you're very busy and it's hard to take up time to be on social media or to be part of this, if you're just taking that extra step beyond for your patient, you know, you're being that better listener and you're listening to their experiences, you know, with that trauma. And informed lens. You're trying to bring that anti-racist, you know, like approach to the daily work that you do. I think that's really great. I mean, you know, know, there can be many other things. I I can list the examples. I mean, it could mean not just social media. It could mean op-ed writing. It could mean also joining uh, organizations which are really focused on advocacy and organizing and have that skill set and learning from colleagues there, where I would honestly say the palliative care voice is very, very much respected and often even lacking. So these organizations include uh, organizations like decent work and, you know, decent health, you know, obviously that would make sense that we want decent work and decent health for all interprofessional team members and, in in, you know, who, are, who we're working with. Um, you know, there's Canadian Doctors for Medicare, for example. I'm a board member of Canadian Doctors for Medicare. We were talking about private for-profit care earlier. Um, you know, there's many such organizations, health providers against poverty, uh, you know, the list goes on. So joining an organization like this might also be a way to, you know, start advocacy. Uh, you know, there's obviously a lot of room to move the needle when it comes to even doing equity-informed, and anti-racist research uh you know doing more you know like you know raising awareness and providing data on health disparities can be very very important writing commentaries all of that actually can be included in advocacy work so i just wanted to make that point that it's not just twitter or social media there's a lot more that should be done and can be done
1: yeah really really good points how do you guys take care of yourselves
2: Um, I think I think the the first thing is um, to know your limits and your healthy, you know, normal limits of any form of advocacy, you know, uh, personally, you know, I do set uh, you know, certain parameters about when I'm on social media, what days of the week. there's always some off days and off hours that are like built into my schedule. And um I'm okay with that. like I don't I don't I try not to have you know fomo about you know, being on social media. I think I think that's one piece. I think the second is to really, ask yourself how much you know um advocacy online um really reaps the benefit of social change you know is this about clicks likes and follows or is it about like really raising an issue and and, and generally getting the message out there, I have found that the more you post, particularly multiple times a day, for example, it doesn't necessarily reap the rewards of social change, although it might feel good. And I know these these platforms are designed in ways that create that addictive tendency that you want to post more. And so knowing what that sweet spot is and for some people that's posting a few times a week, sometimes that's once a day, you know, and that can vary over time. Um, as well. And then I think, um, you know, I just want to lean in on what, you know, um, Dr. Arya has mentioned is that, you know, the work is not on social media, the work is the work, right. And so by leaning back into, you know, the actual work of caring for people who experience structural vulnerabilities, mentoring and educating the next generation, um, having conversations like this, it's, it's a firm reminder of why you kind of do the work and why the work is, is the work. And it's what that's what's created this. And sometimes there's so many distractions with new forms of media that you can start to think that that's what this is all about and it's not it's a microphone it's a tool it's a platform and it's part of a toolbox that we're mm-hmm. using to inspire social change at the micro, micro and macro level to create a socially accountable society so mm-hmm. yeah those are some thoughts on my question
1: mm-hmm. wonderful how about you amit how do you take care of yourself
3: yeah, so, I mean, in addition to what, you know, Nahid just spoke about, I mean, obviously setting some limits on social media and realizing that social media is absolutely not the be all and end all, uh, you know, of advocacy or of, you know, the work that we do, uh, I can just share on a personal level. i mean, I'm very blessed to have amazing family support. I can always lean on my wife and talk to her about things that are very upsetting to me mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, her friends and colleagues like Nahid, who I can always speak to as well, who will always be there for me and support me. know, you know, you know, support me. So family and community are very important. I would even say my kids are at this age where they will support me and they understand uh you know what's happening. Like they want me to be an advocate, but they also want me to look after myself and spend time with family. Um, Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, like that's about it. Colleagues, friends, community, family.
0: Both of you, thank you so much for uh talking with us. And it was really appreciated. Great conversation.
1: Thank you guys.
0: Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you haven't already. You can visit our website, WaitingRoomRevolution.com, to learn more about our movement and how you can join it. The podcast is produced by myself, Kayla McMillan, Valerie Bishop, Shilpa Jyothi Kumar, and Maggie Seaback. Our theme music is Maypole by Ketsa.